0: I'm Steve Backshall, and you're listening to The Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to The Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we are very lucky today to have with us Dr Mark Hutchinson, Head of Biological and Earth Sciences at the South Australian Museum. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks very much, Adrian. Um, so we're at the back of the museum in the Science Centre. That's yeah. right. The average punter doesn't get to come back here, do they?
1: Not so much. You, you can actually, during during opening hours, uh, come in um, into a small area at the bottom where we have a few things on display to give you some sort of notion of what goes on in this building. But this is is kind of the, the engine room for a lot of the museum's knowledge. So the, the stuff that you see put on display out the front comes from uh, research that scientists are doing. And they're not just scientists from somewhere else. We have our own scientific staff here at the museum. It's like a small university department with people who are doing new research on uh, uh, animal and, and earth sort of sciences areas and it's research that usually f- feeds off having a large reference collection. So you know, biologists work on various things but what we are able to do is what you would call say comparative science very often where we have a lot of diversity in front of us and it's, it's research that can take advantage of having that diversity and research of questions that that diversity sort of suggests when you see it in front of you.
0: So, it's, so it's a resource for, for people that are studying a particular field. They can come here and yep. look at yep. specimens. Uh,
1: in many ways, uh, the sort of research that we do is that the you could think of it as being very very foundational for the rest of biology. So, uh, a minimum requirement for any kind of biological information, for instance, is you know what's what's the name of the animal? You know, um, where's it from? And the sort of the what is it and where is it is very much at the core of the sort of biology, for instance, that we do here at the museum. Um, So primary areas of our research would be species discovery. Um, It would be making sense of all that diversity, looking at relationships between groups. So the the way you classify things depends on how much you know about their evolutionary relatedness to one another, and that's the kind of research that, that we do here as well. Uh, And we also look at at how animals work a little bit because we have these reference collections of specimens that have been assembled to document all this diversity and those animals have with them all of their various bits. So if you're interested in how skeletons differ and how skeletons might work, whether exoskeletons or internal skeletons, depending on the group that you're looking at, uh, those sorts of comparative studies also get done very often
0: by by people at the museum. Okay. I mean, I I met you over a decade ago when I used to collect... Specimens for the museum with the scientific expedition group, and mm-hmm. there's an amazing amount of resources here to oh, yes. animal animal specimens.
1: Yeah, um, what you see in the front of the museum is is a tiny, tiny little abstract of the 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 raw material that's in, if you like, the in the vaults back here. Although museums probably owe their initial existence to being able to put on show things for people to come and see. What we've become is is custodians of our bit of the the global collection of animal specimens that are available, then to uh, ask questions and get understanding about uh, the details
0: of animal diversity, I suppose. And we're in South Australia, which has a yep. pretty bad extinction record. Uh, if you're interested in mammals, it's a very disappointing place to come,
1: <laughs> because particularly mammal uh, extinctions were catastrophic in the wake of, of uh, white settlement and. Um, So uh, in some cases the only place uh, now that you can see a a pig-footed bandicoot is to, unfortunately, to come to the museum and, um, and we have some specimens on display and a few specimens out the back and all we know of that animal now, you know, into the future is going to be based on the few individuals that just happened for various reasons to find their way to the museum collection before the rest of the populations were annihilated by by factors that possibly we still don't understand completely, but uh, certainly associated with us bringing our, our ways of using the landscape and the animals that live with us uh, to come and live where the bilbies and the um, yeah, pig-footed bandicoots and so on used to live.
0: Yeah, what an incredible animal, the pigfooted footed bandicoot. I, I don't even know if there's any photographs of a pigfooted footed bandicoot. I, it's, it's not very
1: likely. Um, uh, I don't know of any, uh, and, and really you'd have to talk to our, our, our mammal specialists who might know the, the details of what's available from the past, but... Uh, there are there are paintings and illustrations of them. John Gould painted it and so on. Uh, our specimens, I th- I don't think we've got anything that's younger than about 1914. So it was extinct in the wild at quite an early stage. A yeah, little sort of ballerina relative of <laughs> of the bilby, perhaps you could think of it as, but yeah, lightly yeah. built little grassland runner.
0: Dainty little feet on. Yeah. Very
1: dainty little feet. Yeah, the pigfoot because it only, only has two toes on the front, so they look a little bit like trotters. Ah. So it was a, it was running on
0: tippy toes. Yeah. Now your speciality is reptiles. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and every time a field guide comes out, there's another like 20 skinks. And <laughs> when when do yeah. we say, well, this is the amount of reptiles we have in Australia? Uh, well, once, we st- once we stop checking, I suppose. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. the species
1: discovery has been in a series of waves and initially it was big obvious things like frilled lizards and thorny devils are pretty different from anything anybody else could see and so you can just tell by the external appearance there's nothing else like this anywhere else and then you know there's another level where you can say well these are all rather similar but they're a little bit different in in you know the way their scales stick out or their color pattern whether they've got stripes or spots and so on and then you then you're left with a bunch of small brown things. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know if they're all the same because they're one species, or if they're all the same because they haven't changed their external appearance very much. Um, and uh, we've, so we've now got genetic tools that we can use, you know, DNA similarities and things like that, and uh, look at some of these groups that have, uh, that we're just unsure about. Where we, you know, they, there might be minor differences in their external appearance, and we don't know if it means that there's different gene pools, or there's just individual variation. And so. So that process of, of discovery, of, of looking at the obscure things or in, in Australia things that live in out-of-the-way places uh, is, is still proceeding. And um, so it's probably tapering off with things like like reptiles, but we haven't even started for many of the invertebrate groups, you know, the insects and a lot of the marine creatures. So, yeah, I don't know when it will stop. I, I know of in the South Australian situation perhaps where we have about 250 reptile species described at the moment, um, there are probably 10 or 15 nominal species uh, which have variation that we don't understand in their sort of external appearance and so what I mean by that is that you know if they're a different colour in different parts of their range or have slightly different patterns or slightly different scale features and so um, some of those have still yet to be looked at Genetically, to, to sort of see if we can sort of figure out what that diversity means. But in, in a lot of cases, it probably means that there are a couple of species where we have thought of there being only one. And what, what that often means, uh, it often has important conservation spin offs because if you have a, a widespread single species, the fact that it's in trouble in, in a few parts of its range isn't of much concern because it'll be secure in other parts of its range. If what you've actually got is a mosaic of several species each with a more limited say distribution or set of habitat preferences then uh, you have to take each of those as a separate case rather than a single you know widespread case so you know bad taxonomy can kill (laughs) if you haven't actually got things documented properly uh, things can quietly disappear in their, their little corner of their bit of habitat because no-one had put them on the record and um, it wasn't realised that they were something different till later.
0: When we talk about different species, when I was a kid, mm. I got told that if they, they, two different species can't breed together and if they do, the offspring's infertile. Mm. But now we see all this hybridisation in captivity. Has the definition of a species changed? I
1: think what's happened is it's become harder and harder to make it absolute hard and fast black-and-white rule as to what a species is which shouldn't be too surprising you know uh, if evolution you know is the has been the phenomenon that, that unites everything and it has then uh, you are going to have situations where we're looking at populations that are right in the middle of that process so um, being unable to interbreed with uh, your nearest relatives is something that will appear potentially at some time but there's no there isn't a hard and fast time frame for that it could happen quite quickly uh if you get a chromosomal rearrangement which means that you you know any offspring aren't getting a full set of genes from the, the both parents because they're packaged differently then that'll cause sterility pretty quickly so that's you know, the, the horse-donkey thing is one of those cases where there's a different chromosome number. So mules have an intermediate chromosome number. They have an odd number of chromosomes, and you can't split that evenly to produce naturally balanced sort of eggs and sperm. So you can have, it have that sort of sterility between species happen almost overnight. But if the descendant species of an ancestor haven't changed very much perhaps in the way they develop and they haven't rearranged the way their genes are packaged, there's no reason why, if you put them together... You couldn't get fertile offspring from them. Maybe millions of years after that, um, there's there is a th- uh, an issue with with species definition. Where these days we tend to talk about, if you like, gene pools we can, because we can talk about those. We couldn't talk about those in the past. We didn't have access to them. But now we can sort of define a, a group of populations genetically and say, well, there's, yeah, you know, there's no genetic markers that's that, that are different from these several populations across. This part of their range but between these and some other set of populations there's a series of flags that indicate that there's been some some evolutionary time between the, t- the two of them during which one or both have accumulated genetic changes of their own markers of their own that indicates they're on their own particular track very often uh, all those species can hybridize if you put them in captivity for instance you know, if you can't be with the one you love, you love the one you're with. <laughs> um, but under normal circumstances in the wild, there are various reasons why they won't hybridise even though they can, or where hybridization's just, if you like, the occasional mistake. Um, and so, um, you know, lions and tigers will hybridise, you know. Uh, they don't sort of go around doing it in the wild. They don't have too many opportunities now that we've wiped out a lot of populations. But... Um, there's a lot of situations where it can happen, but it normally doesn't. And so species are are gene pools that are largely separate under natural circumstances. Um, And you are still... Even so, you're going to get things that are right at the point where they uh, might still be interdigitating and back-crossing and and so on. So um, most of the time, that old definition still works members of different species don't think of members of that other similar looking things as people you can mate with they smell funny they sound funny they've got the wrong shape or or whatever there's all kinds of mechanisms that that stop it from happening apart from actual infertility but um at the same time you will get some where it's if you like still undecided about whether this potential differentiation is going to keep going ahead or whether they're going to start sort of back-crossing with each other again and and blur the differences. So it's just a case-by-case sort of basis. But in general, I think evolutionary biologists would think of species as effectively independent gene pools that are going in their own particular evolutionary direction. And you can think of that, too, in in terms of you're a species once you stop depending on new genetic features that your neighbours are getting that you're on your own genetic resources from this point on, except for, you know, you know it, it can tolerate the occasional mistake, the occasional hybridisation event, but it's not so much that, that that gene pool loses its identity because of those occasional leakages from elsewhere. And there's some evidence that those leakages are pretty common in a lot of things that are quite well established, but not so much that it, it starts to to blur the um the genetic profiles of those two source populations
0: well said It's mm. very interesting certainly so in april i think you've been here for 30 years
1: yeah you, you're doing <laughs> some sums yeah.
0: are you still learning about all these things even oh. after
1: 30 years oh god i haven't even started um 30 years is, is just just enough to get yourself confused really yeah um, <laughs> um no it's it's uh, a lot of these things uh, tools and approaches to things that are done collaboratively. So my, I, I'm, I, most of my my personal knowledge would be, for instance, about reptile, particularly lizard and snake, sort of structure and you know, external appearance and skeletal structure and things like that. But science is very, very collaborative. So although there's this sort of idea of the, the, the strange guy who's badly dressed in a little room of his own and doesn't relate very well to people, most... <laughs> Actual research is done by, by people who are sociable types and are uh, getting together with like-minded but differently skilled people to put together little, little coalitions of people. So there are so many tools that are so specialised, you can't be an expert in all of those things anymore. Um, and what you simply have to do is, is maintain a, a good circle of, yeah. of acquaintances, friends, collaborators, you know, enthusiasts, but enthusiasts with, with different toolkits to the one that, that you've got. So uh, I don't have a lot of um, skills in that genetics area, but um, there are people here at the museum and, and other people that I work with who definitely do. The other thing that, that like uh, a lot of uh, university researchers that we we, we do here at the museum, is we take advantage of young people uh, because (laughs) a a lot of the research... I don't know if you can say that. (laughs) A a lot of research is done, uh, you know, a lot of the the stuff that requires a lot of time and and effort and single-minded sort of attention to one particular problem comes from the work of graduate students, PhD and master's students. I'm lucky enough that I, uh, because I'm affiliated with the two uh, Adelaide universities, with uh, Flinders and Adelaide, I, I get to supervise students and things like that. And that's that's where uh, a lot of the new discoveries come because the wonderful aspect of, of of that is that a student doing a PhD degree gets a couple of years to just concentrate on one thing. Uh, as soon as you get higher up the totem pole and you're doing administrative jobs and, and various other things... Um, your your research is, is not always as full time as you'd like it to be, um, and the the thing with with students is it sounds like that that you know that the, they're trainees and they sort of leave you as a as a sort of a as a baby scientist or something like that. But they they actually leave you as a as a, as a full on scientist who knows more about the subject than you do. Um, if they've done their job properly, they they leave and they're there. So you actually learn <laughs> vicariously by by helping other students get started, Um, by the time they're finished, they're the experts and they're telling you what some of this new information is and how to use these new techniques and how to interpret this stuff in a new way. So uh, a lot of the discovery is this sort of collaborative thing, this sort of um, think tank groups of people who are fascinated by some aspect of of the way the world works and get together to sort of put together the, the toolkit and the time and the effort to try and figure out one question so they can go on to the the two questions that that then raises. Mm.
0: There'd be some amazing conversations held in this lunchroom, I'd imagine. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. Maybe um, the
1: lunchroom is just away from it all. That's <laughs> <laughs> what Sometimes it's catching up with the cricket, sometimes it's catching up on what's in the, la- the latest epi- you know, episode in, in nature, but um, uh, it, it varies. But... Yeah, yeah, water cooler conversations are often where these things start. Um, And the nice thing about being at a museum, you've got people with different interests that way. And so everybody always knows stuff that you don't know. um, And if they're wondering about something out loud, you think, oh, I've never thought of how that would go with, say, the animals I'm interested in, or or that's a a tool that we could maybe use to solve this problem. I I didn't think we we could do that sort of thing. So that sort of stuff does sort of... um, come up from time to time as well, just, just with any group of people who've got a kind of a similar set of, of interests and enough difference between them that they're each mining a little bit of um, a different part of the, the, the knowledge universe, I suppose.
0: Um, talking about new species, mm. the Western Desert Taipan. Yeah. That's a recent one.
1: It is. That's, that's one of the most most fun things I've been associated with. I suppose recently, you know, we we do find new species of reptiles and things not un, not infrequently when we go into remote places. But we don't expect them to be six feet long. Um, so finding a, a completely new, unexpected, very large venomous snake was was a surprising thing to be involved with. Um, my part part in the story is is simultaneously fun and embarrassing because i i picked up the first specimen of this thing and didn't realize what i had i thought it was a brown snake because uh, taipans and brown snakes look superficially fairly similar unless you check a couple of the scale features that uh, differentiate them um they're not at first glance, very different. And in Central Australia, there are a couple of species of, of the brown snake group, which are very variable. So, uh, lots of colour pattern variation. And so, um, the, uh, it turns out that the Western Desert Taipan uh, looks not not dissimilar. I won't say really similar, because I have to be honest about that. But not dissimilar to one of the colour patterns you get in the Central Australian populations of, of brown snakes. And uh, the animal that I picked up was was a juvenile that was about a metre long. So this little snake crossing the road um, stopped, like taipans, like, like brown snakes, taipans rear up into sort of an S-curve as you walk up to them if they're feeling a bit defensive, which is what happened with this little snake. And it was a, a field trip jointly with the Western Australian Museum and the South Australian Museum to this sort of area on the Northern Territory border in, in WA, so very hard to get to place. And a lot of the specimens went back to the WA Museum, and including this specimen, and it was when. Brad Marion at the WA Museum was unpacking the specimens. He hadn't been on the trip, so he was having a, you know, he was a bit envious that we'd got out there to this remote place and was looking carefully at all the snakes and pulled this little um, thing out and thought, gee, that's funny looking. Um, because And it was. For a brown snake, its head was much too big. And so at a glance, when you see this little preserved specimen, especially if you've been seeing a couple of the other brown snake specimens that we did collect on the trip, um, this one stood out against the others, even though it was somewhat similar in colour. And so... Brad went ahead and did what I didn't do in the field because I had a live animal um, and uh, I don't play with live venomous snakes very much. He was given a, a euthanising shot and preserved and then that's the last I saw of him. And But Brad checked a couple of the scale features and they were coming up as taipan not as brown snake-ish. And he rang me up and said, I think we got a taipan here. I said, like, get away with you. <laughs> um, but I we had, we, we, uh, had a liver sample preserved so uh, we could compare its DNA with a, a database of brown snake DNA and taipans that had just been prepared for another study and it came out with the taipans but not as either of the known species as it was equally distant at a separate branch on the tree of its own. Um, and what's happened since then is we've now got a few adult animals have turned up uh, still less than 10 individuals known of this species. Adelaide Zoo held some animals for a period of time and we were able to get venom from them, so the venom has been assessed. and It's, it's very toxic venom, which is not unusual for, for taipans. Um, taipans are mammal specialists, as far as we can tell, and that seems to apply to these ones as well. There's a, c- a couple of museum specimens and uh, they have mammal fur and mammal remains in their bodies. And there are a couple of interesting historical records, too, that go back to um, the end of the 19th century uh, where explorers uh, certainly in one case described something from near King's Canyon in, in the Northern Territory, but the specimen doesn't seem to have made it back or doesn't seem to have survived, but the description of an animal of the size and with some of the scale features indicates it was probably one of these snakes. And we've now had a, a roadkill of this taipan turn up about 40 k's from King's Canyon, actually. Wow. Wow. Um, so it's an animal that seems to be in that sort of corner country of uh, Western Australia and Northern Territory. We haven't got it recorded from South Australia yet, but there seems to be no reason why it wouldn't be there, uh, of this very large and unsuspected animal that's living out in the Great Victoria Desert sand dune systems and adjacent areas and was, was simply um, not known about. You know, we went through all the museum collections when these first ones sort of showed up. Just, oh, this probably oh, this has been overlooked. No, nobody had one. Uh, yeah, it's amazing what is out there. But it's also, you know, people ask, well, why do you collect them? Yeah, why do you take them back? They don't ask that for the botanists. <laughs> they, don't, they don't ask them about even about the ants. But vertebrates, they somehow think that, oh, you, you can get by without having a specimen. But to be honest, if we'd simply, if I'd simply noticed this thing crossing the road, I would have ticked brown snake, moved on. It was only because we stopped and actually held on. And then having the specimen enabled us to describe it because initially this was the only individual that we had to describe the species on um it, it was a year or two later that others started to turn up from other parts of the gvd and uh, there were other animals to compare with it but initially to get this animal on the map we had to depend on this one individual that i was able to bring back as a as a museum specimen so um it's uh, it's still a core part of what we do
0: that's awesome there probably isn't enough known about the Western Desert Taipan to give it a conservation rating or does it have one?
1: Um, No, it probably doesn't. I don't know that um, um, I know that it's not on a list uh, as an endangered species. It would be definitely in in what's called least concern um, but it's probably also data deficient. Um, There's no reason to think that it's um, not surviving across a large-ish area of central Australia um, but it's a difficult animal to locate and because it's large and clearly in that venomous snake group even most sort of scientists or you know biological surveyors and so on if they're not sort of snake experts they're not going to be able to sort of examine the snake at close range to confirm or deny if they see this you know large tan fast moving very willing to defend itself kind of snake. Um, So it requires sort of experts to sort of go after the animal and then it's it's a matter of being able to locate an animal that's big, fast-moving, very alert, probably can see you coming before you see it and uh, makes it a difficult animal to go hunting for, really. Mm. So what, what are some of the reasons why you do collect these animals? Um, we do it for, for various reasons. Um, generally speaking, um, everything that we do now, it, we, we have to do it through uh, a series of, sort of scientific permits and, and animal welfare sort of approvals. So what we do is we, we undertake to... Um, check if we're going into an area what's already known from that area. So if if a species has not been recorded as a specimen from uh, an area, say where there's a, a fauna survey going on, we would bring back a couple of individuals from that population, and it's a, it's a one-off sampling for all time potentially. Um, but from that sampling, we get information that we can use in perpetuity on on the physical appearance of the animal. We take a genetic sample. We got so so we got. Basically, the the local gene pool sampled as well. And that acts as a reference point for, as I say, in perpetuity from that area. Uh, The animal will also bring with it any aspects of the environment that's part of it. So, you know, you can do... People have done things like heavy metal and pesticide surveys from museum specimens accumulated over long periods of time because that shows you, you know, how those things go. and, And with DDT, how they... They you know, increased and then decreased as it became, you know, uh, less widely used and so on.
0: Is that in reference mm. to the shells of, I think, an eagle in America? That
1: oh, this, yes, there was eggshell thinning and things yeah. like that. People looked at bird eggshells and stuff like that. Yeah. Um So it's 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 a sample. As I said, p- people don't um, question why you would take a herbarium sample of a plant if you were there, um, you know, just to make sure that you had the identification correct. Um, we certainly don't pick up vertebrates now as casually as that. Um, But there's still a place for having vertebrate specimens in order to um, be able to describe what's going on, Um, and you can't do that when it's just running around the bush. Um, From the conservation and ecological point of view, um, we – the way to think of that sort of human activity to me is like um, uh, an occasional predator in an area so any of these populations that we sample they are subject to their own predators in those populations and their own pathogens and diseases every day around the clock uh, us humans are there for a couple of days we take one or two individuals so it's not something that's going to affect that population one way or the other but it does give us the most reliable tools we've got in order to manage those those populations and whether they like it or not humans are responsible for pretty much all of these all these animals continuing to survive we're going to have the ultimate say so of, of what happens so anything we do be, had better be based on the best knowledge that we can get of these populations uh, but that said it's for, for species that are absolutely on their last legs and we, and where we suspect the population densities are low and um, there aren't very many individuals about in those cases we would refrain from taking specimens it's, it's not something that we would do automatically just because one came across our path so uh, there are situations where we wouldn't be picking up animals to to take back as specimens because um, we would fear that the populations were so poorly you know represented that um, we might be doing harm so but if you're in a remote area coming across something for the first time you know in, a, in a, a very out of the way place um then uh, it's not really conceivable that we would do damage to that population. And it's quite conceivable that if we don't take those specimens, we are actually missing out on a lot of important information.
0: And I guess if you know that specimen and it is endangered or anything is in that area, you can protect... It would help towards protecting land, et cetera, I guess.
1: Yeah, I suppose... I mean, it depends on a case-by-case basis sort of how that works. But just as an example... um, I've been involved with an endangered species, the, the pygmy blue tongue lizard, in the mid-north of South Australia now for 25, 27 years, and um, we have never actually gone and collected one for the museum uh, while we've been working on them, because when we initially started to work on them, there were no wild populations known. It was The, the research started as a result of some you know, serendipitous discovery of a wild population, and by being out there and studying them, but what, what has actually happened is we have acquired extra, extra specimens. We've picked up dead individuals, you know, predator kills, things out of snakes, um, animals that simply have simply apparently died of exposure, young animals that didn't thrive. So we have a few extra specimens of pinky blue tongues to look at, but not because we've gone out and, and you know, just to get one for the museum. Um, in that case, the the individuals out there are sufficiently few and sufficiently poorly known that we are you know, we are trying to understand them, but. We don't need to get lots of individuals in that case. Of a very local population, um, the couple that we've got serendipitously are, are enough to represent that
0: population in a collection. Have we ever had any extinctions of reptiles in South Australia? No,
1: we thought that, th- th- we thought for a while that the pygmy blue tongue was it, uh, because uh, although it was it was actually named back in the 19th century, by the 20th century um, there really didn't seem to be anybody who. Uh, knew of it as a wild animal um and right back in 1929 when edgar Waite wrote the australia's sort of first field guide to the to state's reptiles and amphibians uh he actually referred to this thing as the doubtful blue tongue because as far as he was concerned he'd never seen one and he was wondering if it was just a misidentified baby of one of the other blue tongues perhaps and so right from the early 1920s then you know like expert opinion was that this thing probably wasn't around um, and 1959, a couple of animals turned up on a building site in what's now Mitchell Park, as, as, the, as the southern suburbs were expanding. Um, and that was sort of seen by, the, by my equivalent at the time, John Mitchell, who went down was very excited, knew what it was, and thought, wow, 1959, we've suddenly suddenly got one. But they weren't able to find any more, and it was in a very um, modified bit of sort of farmland um, habitat, so they had no idea what, where they should be looking, what sort of place did it live in, and in 1992, um, one turned up inside a snake in, in sort of just paddicky sheep sort of looking country near Borough, and that's turned out to actually to be the place they like. They like grassland, and we had overlooked the fact that a lot of the grassy landscapes that we've got up in the mid-north are at least partly native. They're not just man-made um, pastures. They're native areas of open grassland that probably were always there, and that's the habitat that this little lizard likes. And they're down spider holes. Yeah, that's Um, right. And they they make it difficult for us because they have a peculiar way of of hiding by taking over old uh, trapdoor spider and wolf spider burrows. their sort of little tubular body shape is just the right size to fit down a a two centimetre wide burrow. And the burrow goes down deep enough that it provides them with a sort of a uh, dehydration and sort of temperature-proof little missile silo to sort of live in. And the, 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 the hard, sort of rather clayey ground means that it's very difficult for a predator to dig them out and they base their whole lives around having a spider hole to live in. They sort of sit up at the entrance and grab spiders and grasshoppers and things as they go by and then can duck down into the hole at the slightest you know disturbance and be perfectly safe. So do you think we'll ever find one again in the Adelaide area or...? no it seems very unlikely the, 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 the reason that it seems very likely the reason that they are only now in, in some patches up in the mid north is because ploughing changes the way the soil sits so instead of being hard packed and difficult to excavate meaning that any burrows in it are quite stable um, ploughing of course is designed to break up the soil to make it more friable and easier to sort of um, you know for plants to use and that one act of ploughing would annihilate any populations of pygmy blue tongues that happen to be in an area, and the places where, where the lizards are surviving aren't on any flat country. There's no no flat populations of pygmy blue tongue lizards. They're all on slopes, so they're around the edges of paddocks. In the the bits that are a bit too hilly or a bit too stony, a bit too near the creek or whatever, for them to people to bother ploughing. It just wasn't you know it wasn't worth doing. Just run the sheep there instead. And grazing is fine as far as the lizards are concerned. They they can cope quite well with grazing, even in areas that. There are places where the just the, the vegetation shows you that some of these places have been quite overgrazed from time to time and the lizards are still present. So stable soils are what they require and unfortunately for them they happened to pick a spot that was just naturally, you know, was almost, you know, all ready to be ploughed, you know, very open, grassy sort of flattish landscapes. and So that sort of intensive use of the landscape is, is more extreme the closer you get to Adelaide. And so the southern populations that must have been between us and Kapunda, for instance, no longer exist. Um, and it's only when, when you get north of there that you start to find little patches, uh, as I say, often on the edges of paddocks, where the, the uh, soil is stable but deep enough for spider holes. They don't go up on the slopes because the soil's not, soil's not deep enough, so they have to be in these little patches that are uh, where the soil is just right, a sort of little Goldilocks zone yeah. for them. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And in those areas, they're, they're, they're getting by not too badly.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's, I was going to ask you the closest ones to Adelaide, so around Kapunda would yeah. be the closest ones. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. What are they eating?
1: They, well, they're not dietary specialists. They'll, they'll eat anything. And in fact, when we, if, if we're needing animals to sort of measure or study or see how they, they're going, and they've been pretty well studied since they, they showed up. So we, we can fish them out of a burrow with a mealworm they they're, they're greedy enough sometimes to simply hang on and let you pull them out of the burrow um, so uh, and uh, yeah so there's no no dietary specialist they're, they're like any uh, a lot of other small lizards that will eat anything that they can sort of overpower and a little bit of vegetation perhaps as well but mostly insects um, yeah, their specialization comes in from their preferred hiding place and that uh, of a relatively large lizard that's sort of Designed to fit into a tube for storage, is 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 kind of unique to them. There's nothing else around the world even that does anything quite the, the way that they do it. They they live. They actually depend on the spiders. They're Not capable of digging their own burrows. Um, so without the spider coexistence, um, so they need enough complexity in their ecology and their ecosystems to have uh, the spiders. We we can provide holes for them. We can uh, temporarily do that, but. Um, the holes that we can put in the ground aren't permanent; they you know, degrade and fall away. Whereas trapdoor spiders finish theirs with a sort of an adobe layer lining the, the walls of the burrow that makes them much more much more durable. Yeah, so lizards and spiders have that sort of reliance on each other a little bit. Although spiders, I suppose, the spiders don't really care about the lizards all that much. Um, lizards take over empty burrows rather than killing the spider. Um, the The ideal burrows for the pygmies are trapdoor spider burrows that have got kind of bath plug lids and the lizards simply couldn't get at them even if they wanted to um, as it is a, a human needs something like a pocket knife blade because the spiders when mm-hmm. they're disturbed will rush up to the top and hang on to the lid and they're big strong spiders and with the, the lid flushed to the ground unless you sort of break the lid open you can't actually get into the burrow but the uh, <laughs> but the um what, but the Trapdoor spiders' uh, life cycle means that once adult males are mature, they leave the burrows permanently and go off and look for love. And so every breeding season, um, a big proportion of spider burrows suddenly becomes empty each year as a a cohort of male spiders reach sexual maturity and then set out um, to wander around and mate with females and eventually die that season. And so each each, May, a whole bunch of new home sites gets opened up for little baby lizards which were born in the previous sort of February so it's a, it's a system that would work quite well as long as you don't put a plough over the country
0: mm. yeah. that's, that's, that's great isn't it the way that that works out. Yeah. So now you don't really have to because the, the areas they do it on slopes etc mm. um, you probably don't need to Protect land and things because um, the, the main thing
1: is, is is to have a sort of an it ain't broke don't fix it mm. kind of approach. Um, there's, there's always possibilities for you know, new land uses to sort of come into farming land, and, and you know if you're a farmer you don't want to sort of just not try something just in case you know there might be some new way of, of doing things. So the what we try and encourage, I guess, is if you've got a, a little patch um, and the lizards are there and your livelihoods never depended on changing the way that patch was used, well, you know, it would be uh, hopefully no great disadvantage just to continue to leave that little spot alone and not change what you were doing. Um, we're not aware of too many things. I mean, the, the main, there are areas of potential changes where people want to have paddocks that are used, say, to concentrate sheep for, you know, periods of time and putting extra water sources in and extra disturbance in. It's something that might have an effect but um, the main industrial um, development in the mid-north has been wind farms and we're not aware of uh, – the, the main issue with wind farms is the act of putting them in, is the putting in of you know, heavy heavy equipment going over the country and things like that. Um, but, they, the, but the turbines themselves tend to go on, on hilltops which tend not to have lizards on them because the soils are too stony and too thin. So as long as there's some thoughtfulness done when people are arranging to set up uh, wind farm infrastructure with the, the cabling and the tracks and the access, um, being able to spot where the lizards are and um, you know, work around them is potentially the main thing that needs to be done. So th- we're still there so, some longer term studies that we've got in place where we're sort of quietly sort of monitoring lizards where, they, they do happen to be fairly close to turbines just to see if the turbines themselves are producing any negative effects. There's no, no compelling evidence yet that they do, which is encouraging. So, yeah, most, mostly land use is pretty stable in that part of the world, though. Our Farmers figured out a fair while ago the best way you can use, you know, this particular, you know, landform and this particular paddock and, you know, what, what, what goes best there, and they, they tend to to keep on doing what works best and so the lizards have survived in in the places where what the farmers wanted are what suited them as well so as I said, ultimately it comes round to the fact that we're happy for just just keep right on doing what you you were doing and the lizards survived all this time without us worrying about them while you were doing it so there's no reason why they shouldn't keep on surviving the the main overriding concern for the future is probably climate change as the arid zone sort of shifts south, the lizards don't live in very arid things. They need a reasonable rainfall for the, the grassland habitat they like. So if we start to get a de- deterioration of, of uh, habitat, sort of desertification as it's sort of coming out of the inland, we may have to look at how we relocate animals. And we're doing doing a little bit of work on that. We've had some students doing some studies on... on what sort of problems and possibilities there might be for for moving lizards from to, to a new a new place, and you know, how do you get them to settle? How do you get them not to wander around looking for somewhere better before they've settled into their burrows and things like that? So that's sort of a medium-term management thing that we're trying to sort of get in, get on top of before we have to do it. We don't have to do it as an emergency. We've got a chance to sort of study the animals now, at a time where we don't have to move them, and see what we can do with with small experimental relocations and learn learn about that so that we're we're ready to to do something about it if uh, the habitat deterioration reaches the point where the northern populations are starting to suffer
0: it's almost like rewilding isn't it
1: there's an aspect of that and and there's a lot of conversations about conservation in south australia where people are talking about um, reintroductions and, and those sorts of things um that's something I haven't got a, a massive amount of sympathy for a lot of that because I think it sometimes dis- distracts attention from populations that are actually still out there that could use a bit of um, financial support for research to how to, how to how to keep them out there. Putting animals back after they've gone completely is expensive and high maintenance and difficult. And while it's nice to think that they'll be out there again, what? In most cases, you're going to end up with this kind of a free-range zoo. It's going to be, have to be actively managed. probably going to have to have fences. It's probably going to have to have constant um, fox, cat, rabbit control, things happening all the time. Um, whereas if we can give some populations that are still surviving a helping hand, we can keep them out there self-maintaining without a lot of input from us. Uh, yes, it's, it's interesting how you have to prioritise usually... The fact that there's not enough money to preserve everything, and sort of triage often results in you know, mammals first, birds second, <laughs> reptiles third, <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know, by the time you get down to insects, there's often not much time <laughs> for for them at all. So uh, nobody wants any
0: rewilding of a lapids either, do they? Uh, no, I haven't, haven't heard of
1: it. it hasn't been a groundswell of support coming to my door for, for well, it. I do, no. I do. <laughs> Death at us back at Tennyson Dunes, perhaps? Uh, yes. Well, that would be. Uh, uh, yeah, that that is the kind of thing that would be would be nice to have. We've you know, we've done a lot to our coastal environments to make them very unattractive places for death <laughs> at us, unfortunately. And so yeah, reversing a lot of the damage that we've done is is very difficult. And when you look at the gains, you know, you think, well, yeah, maybe we could be you know, spending
0: our money better. The um the Maradaline carpet python mm. gets to the Eastern Lofty ranges. Yeah, um, and yeah. They they still turn up.
1: Uh, I haven't heard of a uh, of one turning up. Outside of an area, where there there uh, there was a, a a private property that that did some um, reintroductions of animals onto H- it. Highland Valley, that's the area. Yeah, where where an animal had actually been found naturally, and and it was one of the last places on that side of the of the hills where one had turned up naturally. So it seemed a spot that you could sort of encourage that as a focus. Um, to bring them back and there was extra fox control done. Um, But I haven't heard of any carpet snakes recently. I mean, apart from... There are still some sightings coming there, even though that active sort of reintroduction thing is is no longer going. There seems to be some survivors in that area. But I'm not... I've not heard of any carpet snake
0: records from away from the river for some time now. I was talking to a park ranger a couple of years back from Deep Creek, and they found a carpet python. Deep Creek? And he said... He said he brought it into you, so maybe maybe mm. I've got my story mixed up. But and you said it's definitely a South Australian farm, but we can't say it wasn't an escape pet. Mm. Okay,
1: it's, I, I don't remember that now. It's too long ago, I guess. But yeah, that would be surprising. Deep Creek's a bit cooler and sort of places where carpet snakes are mostly found. They seem to have a requirement for you know a warmer, more more warm nights down there on the coast. Deep Creek's pretty cold a lot of the year, even in summer they get a lot of cold nights. So, um, yeah, don't know. Okay. Don't know.
0: Because, like, blue tongue lizards do really well in suburbia In some places in Australia, mm. carpet pythons do really well in suburbia. They do, How yeah.
1: How we've never really had carpet pythons? Um might depend. It seems to be... Animals seem to be more adaptable if they're in, the, in their core biological range. So south-east Queensland, the suburbs of Brisbane, somewhere like that where there's a lot of carpet snakes, is right in the you know, a very happy place climatically for carpet snakes. Adelaide's right on the fringe, and you know, carpet snakes in South Australia in general are confined to places that are probably a little bit better watered in various ways, either along the Murray Valley, um, up at Goida's Lagoon, along the Cooper Creek, um, in rock outcrops and things like that, rocky hills, which are often a bit more humid, so through the Flinders Ranges and in the Gaula Ranges. Um so, uh, they're not sort of a widespread animal naturally in the landscape, they're very patchy and um, it's possibly because a lot of South Australia is just unsuitable climate unless they've got some sort of access to water or, or a deep refuge of getting away from the worst of the dry summers it's just probably too arid and so, uh, so our summers are quite different to Brisbane summers, you know, we have these Mediterranean summers where the rain stops in about October and doesn't start again, you know in any sort of significant amounts till Easter, whereas uh, they've got rain all through the summer in that, in that East Coast area. So it's a much more humid, much more water-available
0: environment than we would have in South Australia. Do you think climate change will benefit any... Like, if we get the warming that's happening, will that benefit any species, do you think? Probably will.
1: Um, one of the problems, though, is we don't... For just about every species on Earth, <laughs> we just don't know enough about them. We don't know, we don't know what limits species now. So if you change things, we don't know if those changes are going to negatively or positively affect the limits of a lot of species. About The only species you can, we can be fairly sure of are alpine ones, because if they could occur below the tree line, they would. Mm-hmm. So as the tree line rises, they're probably going to be in trouble, but it's, it's terribly difficult. So people, the, the, mo- the main approach people have used is they've, they've mapped where a species is now and said well we can describe that set of environmental parameters for that area and so when we model what happens in climate change you can see that this whole region now has a different climate so if that's the case this species looks like it's it's toast because um, the set of environmental parameters in which it currently occurs won't be satisfied by that landscape in the future but what we don't know is whether that where that species currently occurs is the only place it can occur because um, there's lots of reasons why species don't occur in a place and a lot of it's just inaccessibility you know there's species that occur in the southeast of Australia that would do quite well around Perth um, and if you introduce them sometimes you find out that they do like kookaburras for instance got introduced to the Perth area um, and they didn't get there under their own steam but once we put them there that was fine Uh, but if you uh, take the approach of the, that sort of climate modelling and mapped Kookaburra the way they really they used to be. You would say, well, they can only live in the southeast. They can't live in the west because there's none in the west. So there's a, a logical problem where because something isn't somewhere, it can't be there. And so for most species, we don't actually know that they're confined to the areas where they are currently occurring. For all we know, um, they could occur quite more widely but maybe there's a, a competitor that keeps them out or maybe just through some historical accident they used to be there but now they've died out or they never got there but they could live there if they got the chance to get there so what we need actually is much more information about individual animals you know, for this species what's the minimum temperature at which it can go out and find food what's the maximum in temperature that'll stop the eggs from hatching those sorts of things and we don't know that for most species so it's mostly guesswork, as I said. Unless um, you've got you know, a peculiar situation like alpine ha- habitats, we we don't know what's going to happen for most species. We we can be really confident, I think, that some pe- for some species it'll be a disaster, for some species it'll be an opportunity. Maybe a lot of a lot of species have got an, enough adaptability already in their systems that they'll just deal. But we just don't know.
0: Are there things that the average punter can do to help, like? citizen science if people are traveling and we, we have the goanna watch program if people see a goanna they can report it to goanna watch and is there anything else that people can do to be involved and, and help out?
1: look there's more and more of these citizen science things coming up and my suggestion is would be that if you're interested in making some sort of a contribution just just hop onto the web and find out what people are doing um the main thing with citizen science is there has to be a superstructure to take advantage of all those observations. And so to just to go up and start you know, start recording, you know, all the go-adders I see in, in my backyard, that, that's fine, um, but you need a a way of feeding that into somebody who's going to maintain the data and crunch the data and, and get some new knowledge out of it. Um, but as it, it is a, a a burgeoning area and um, uh, so my feeling would be um, just get online and, and you could put keywords for the animals that you're interested in and put in things like citizen science or put in things like you know community conservation or whatever with, with your favourite animal or favourite habitat's name and um, join, say, networks that are already established and there are, there's a whole variety of them in, in different ways that sometimes fairly easy to get a group of people to start gathering observations. What's really hard to do is to have those observations go to some place where they can be assessed and acted
0: on. But as I said, those networks are building up and there's more and more of it. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and mate, if I just ask one last question, so I know your time's valuable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is there anything that you're working on right now or that you're aware of that you're involved in that um, you can share with us? Um, yeah, there's always, there's always something going on. Um,
1: uh, I suppose that the, the, the sort of... A research area, I guess, maybe that, that I've got involved with lately is something that is is something that is very kind of museum based. I suppose you know, we have these large collections of specimens that have been sometimes collected, you know, hundred, you know, certainly dozens of years ago. Um, you know, old specimens, old bodies that have been sitting around in the collection for a long period of time. Um, what's interesting is is that museums. Are holding these specimens can take advantage of new opportunities as they come along. So there are new ways of looking at biological materials that we wouldn't have dreamed of in the past. And so, for me, one of these new areas, which is enabling me to be involved in studies that better understand skeletons and those that that, that fundamental bit of an animal's makeup that that you know, makes it work, um, is the fact that we now have what's called micro CT scanning. So the, the big hospital CT scanners that, you know, you can, you've can you seen that on, on videos, might have even experienced yourself where you, you go through this great big donut and the, the X-rays are not just X, you don't just get an X-ray, the X-rays are turned into three-dimensional pictures of the different, you know, solid objects inside inside a body that are out of sight. Well, there are micro scanners that, that are designed to take small things like little lab animals and they, they're much more refined in their precision because they're looking at small objects so you can put uh, in in the case of lab researchers can can be working say on um, working on bone cancer in rats um, you could have a rat that's sort of developed a bone cancer you can give it some treatment you can put it in, into these little ct scanners and it'll tell you if the if the cancer is you know shrinking or expanding or whatever again just working on teeth and you know baby teeth or the teeth of, of animals how teeth are formed and how they erupt so I can put my preserved reptile specimens into these scanners and I can now look at, at the, the skull architecture of tiny lizards that have got, you know, four or five millimetre long skulls and if I was t- to look at that on one of my specimens I'd have to destroy the specimen in order to get the skull out um, and then I'd have a tiny little object anyway just is pretty difficult to understand. You can look at it under a microscope and maybe you can sort of get a few photographs of it. Now what I can do is I can image it. I can put it up on a screen. Um, I can rotate it on the screen. I can even take it apart. I can take individual bits. There are programs that enable you to identify bits and then virtually pull it to pieces. Um, and again, I could do that with a, with a real skull, but that would then give me a skull in lots of little pieces. Whereas if I, if I could do that on the screen, I can then say, no, I don't like that view. I'm going to put it back together and cut it up another way. So I get to have this sort of um, uh, virtual exploration of... The skeletal structure of tiny animals um, which tells me a lot that I can use to interpret fossils to interpret the function of jaws and things like that you know snakes versus lizards and and the way that snakes can do all these weird stuff with their with their jaws I can see all those moving parts on on specimens sometimes very rare specimens that I can't get alive that are exotic things from some other part of the world that came into the museum years ago we might only have maybe one member of that family and I can look at it and take it apart and play with it and do all this stuff virtually if necessary i can 3d print it um
0: wow uh, <laughs> without,
1: without uh, destroying without destroying it yes really this this, right. this um, and so having a new toolkit suddenly makes a whole lot of other questions that you never would have thought of asking suddenly possible to ask how do how do baby snakes differ from their from their grown-up relatives i've got working with a student who's working on sea turtles and the different sea turtles have got quite different skulls as adults that seems to be associated with their diets um, they all start from kind of a similar baby turtle kind of look, but baby turtle skulls have always been really difficult to work on because they fall to pieces. They're not all the bones aren't connected to each other. So if you try and get a dry skull from a baby sea turtle, you end up with a bunch of turtle spare parts. But if you CT scan a baby sea turtle, you get all the bones in their right positions with each other, with respect to each other, and can measure and compare them without, um, you know, without all the bits falling in your lap. That's,
0: that's very that sound It really, sounds really expensive, but sounds
1: really <laughs> <laughs> the uh Yeah, the, the CT scanners, fortunately, because we're co- you know, collaborators with the University of Adelaide, the University of Adelaide, along with the electron microscopes and things like that, have a micro-CT scanner that they use for, for their researchers, and, and because we're affiliated researchers, we get to use it too. And then all of the, the software that's used to to play with these images, well, we, we get that for ourselves, so I, I can... And in fact, I, use, I have a volunteer who's learned how to use the scanner. She's a trusted person, goes over there, works with their technicians, gets the basic scan images and then brings them back and then we've got the software and computers here to then do that virtual dissection and, and all the various interrogations you can use to look at shapes and look at the way bones interact and things like that. That sounds great for
0: the future. What an amazing teaching tool to as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's
1: got a lot of potential for that, yeah. So we're getting 3D prints of, of skulls that I can use teaching second-year students about reptile diversity And you know, instead of having a tiny little skull that you have to gather around a microscope to look at. <laughs> yeah. Here's a big big one that's as big as cricket cricket ball. You can just pass it around and have a look at it for yourself. You know.
0: mm, that is amazing. Pretty um, good. I have got one other question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we did a podcast not, not too long ago about keeping native animals as pets. Mm. Do you have any sort of uh, input on that or, and do you keep any um, animals as pets yeah, I, I have a pet lizard Yeah, um, <laughs>
1: um, I don't get very much input uh, with, um, with reptiles as pets um, sometimes there are requests for a species that's not currently kept and so sometimes I'll, I'll be asked about what its likely conservation status is and things like that. Although it's, it's normally under these sorts of control situations, it's not usually a conservation issue. Um, the main conservation issues with, with that are the really avid collectors who want something because it's rare. Uh, and some of those people are overseas, so you actually get you know, rare Australian things being sought out to be shipped to the fanciers who, who, who want you know, uh, something rare because it's rare. But uh, for most people, keeping reptile, what they want is, is an animal that's going to thrive, and um, so you're often better getting an animal that's been bred in captivity because it's from a, a group that's already adjusted to all that problem, all those issues that that are being in captivity means, which is being very close all the time to a very large predator, which m- makes most animals nervous. But yeah, I, I have a, a pink tongue skink as my as my pet because it's uh, it ticks a lot of boxes out of for, for curiosity and specialisation amongst skinks, which are the lizards that I've spent most of my time studying, so uh, a
0: beautiful skink.
1: And um, yeah, he's he's 14 years old now, and, and does very nicely on introduced land snails as his as his staple diet. So uh, yeah,
0: brilliant. Thank you. Good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Sure. And thanks for listening.